Good morning. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18. Look at the joy in doing the work of God. When I was in grade school, I think it was fifth or sixth grade, our class took a trip down to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. How many of you have been to Mammoth Cave? Any? All right. A number of you have. There was a, a large room that they took us to, and it was, I don't know, it seemed like at least two or three times or four times as the size of this room that we're in. And they had us all turn off all of our flashlights, and that provided us a good opportunity to smack the person next to us because nobody could see who did it. And so there's lots of fighting that ensued, but that's not the point. Um, anyways, the, our guide finally flipped on a lighter, and just that one little flame was able to light up the entire room. It was truly amazing. You went from not being able to see literally the hand in front of your face or the person you're hitting or anything like that, but then all of a sudden you could see everything. You could see everybody around you. You could see the entire room. And it was truly remarkable to see how just even one small flame was able to make such a difference in a darkened cave. Our idea for this morning is that being a light in the darkness involves the work of God in you and through you. Both in you, how he's at work in you, in your heart and life, and then the work that you do because of what Christ has done. Let's go ahead and look at verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved brother, my beloved, as, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the work that you're continuing to do in our lives. I pray that we will have that desire to do the work that you have called us to. I pray that you'll help us to shine as lights in the world, that we will stand out from this crooked and twisted generation that will be different, that people will be drawn to the light, and that we will be able to point them to the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see first that he describes these uh, believers in Philippi. He says, my beloved, therefore my beloved. This is the same word, agape, that God used, and we kind of learned about this morning in Sunday school. Uh, Matthew 3.17, when God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So again, we are confronted with this great relationship that Paul has with his church. And obviously, there's great love back to him because we see that they obey him whether he is there or not. That is impressive. As you can tell, when the lights go out in Mammoth Cave, we are all willing to not obey because no, our teachers can't see us so we can get away with anything. But here they're obeying whether he's there or whether, even more, when he's not there. 
Now, we don't know exactly if this is just Paul's instructions to them that that's what they're obeying specifically, or whether it's just generally obeying their Savior, obeying what Christ had taught them. Either way, we see that their obedience is not based on whether who's around or not. It's based on their love for Christ. Now, there have been many times that I've, I've heard people say, you can't say that to your pastor. Have you ever heard like people say maybe inappropriate jokes or maybe say tell lies or something like that, and then all of a sudden somebody else comes in like, you can't tell that to your pastor. I've heard that many, many times. I've heard even more times, you can't say that in church. How many of you guys have heard that before? You can't talk like that, not in church. We can't do that. It's as if to say you can say those things outside of church, that that's okay then, right? Because only God knows what we're doing here in these walls, right? God is only confined to this space, or he's only with your pastor, because if you say that to your pastor, then your pastor might tell, tell on you to God, and then God would find out the things that you've been saying. Then you'd get in trouble, Right? Isn't that amazing how our minds kind of work that way, that we think if we're at church, we have to say nicer things than we're allowed to say when we're at home or when we're at school or when we're at work. We can act differently okay out there, and that's okay, but here in church, we have to act a certain way, we have to look a certain way. When we are struggling, when we have our uh, struggling, maybe a loss of a loved one or we're in the hospital or, or something like that. Don't we take comfort in knowing that God is always with us? We, we love that truth, right? That God is ever-present with us when we're going through a hard time and we're struggling in some way. But yet we shudder at the same exact truth when we want to live how we want to live. That if God's not around, then finally I can do what I want to do. Sometimes we choose to ignore that truth when we have the opportunity to live for ourselves, No one else is around. Nobody can tell. The pastor's not around. We're not in church, so I can get away with whatever I want to get away with. So we can all relate to that sort of thing. When parents aren't around, the things that we try to get away with. So we can all relate to that, and so we can understand how great of an encouragement that they're getting, that they're saying, you're not only obeying when I'm around, when I'm gone, you're even obeying even more. It's being reported back to me that you are working out the salvation. He said, continue to do that. Continue to work out your salvation here with fear and trembling. It's truly amazing to under, try to understand this work of God that he's doing. How does this Christian life work? We are to work out our salvation, as it says here in verse 12, but it also says that it is God who works in us. So how much of it is God how much of it is us? The answer is yes. It's both. Because I don't think we can blame God for all of the sins that we commit, right? We can't say, well, it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Everything I do is all the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Because what about the times when we sin, when we lie, when we maybe tell those inappropriate jokes, when we uh, do things that are selfish, Are we going to say that that's the Holy Spirit's work in our life, that we're being selfish? God cannot tempt us to sin. God cannot force us or cause us to sin. That's that's in us. But we also can't say that it's all about us, right? You can't just say, because there are times when we make wise decisions, that we're selfless, God-honoring 
decisions. There are times when we serve others selflessly. We can't say that that's all us, right? Because we know and understand how desperately wicked our heart is. So how does that work? Is is it all the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not all the Holy Spirit because I know I choose to sin, but it's also not all the work of me as if God has no part in it at all. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says it this way, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, here we see, I worked harder than any of them. So it was Paul's effort, Paul's work here, though it, wasn't, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So we need to understand that the work that we do, the, the effort that we take into opening up Scripture and studying it and coming to church, all this effort and work that's put in, in anything done for the glory of God, it's because of the work that Christ has done in you. Because of God who works in you, who's doing it for his good pleasure. This is where the fear and trembling comes into play. Because we understand that the work that we're doing, it's not all about us. We're not doing it for our own good pleasure. We're doing it for God. And so that should cause some fear and trembling. It should cause some fear and trembling in the work that we're doing because once we realize we leave the walls of church and we're not around the pastors anymore, or maybe kids, maybe you're going to school, you're not around your parents anymore, then you realize God is still with you, ever present, knowing exactly all the things that you're looking at. He can see all those things. He can hear all the words you're saying. He can see the inner thoughts in your heart. Shouldn't that cause some fear and trembling? Not to where we're decap... Or I, I've tried practicing this word. I don't even know how to say this word. because You're not decapitated. That's not the word I'm looking for. De- I don't know. Somebody else tell me later. Where you're at home and you don't have the ability to do anything. You're going to say, I'm going to stay at home. I'm not going to leave the house. I am not going to do anything for fear that God might smite me. And I'm going to just say the wrong thing. And then I'm just in that sort of fear in trembling mode. No, but we are in fear and trembling that we are in awe of who God is. We understand who he is and his awesomeness and his greatness and that we are doing everything for his good pleasure. It's not for us. We're doing it before the one who is almighty, our God. So we must work out this salvation with fear and trembling. We can't do it on our own. It is him who works in us. And so the obedience, the working out of our salvation, it's all to be done in his presence. So we need to do it with fear and trembling. It's for his good pleasure. It's all for Christ. That's why we do what we do. It should be all for Jesus Christ. And it's really, truly one of the mysteries that's difficult for our minds to wrap around. Because we know we can't just say, let go and let God. You can't just say, I'm going to put my Bible underneath my pillow, and whatever God wants me to absorb and learn about him, I'll just let him do it. I'm not going to do any of the work. I'm just going to let God do everything. We can't say that. We can't say that at all because we have to. You guys are here. You guys had to put some effort in coming here, didn't you? You had to set the alarm maybe, even though you might not have wanted to. You had to set the alarm and wake up and make your way here to hear the word of God. You are working out your salvation. If you know Christ is your Savior, you're working that out. But it's not on your own that you've done that. You can't just say, I just did it all on me because I am awesome and amazing. We do it because God has worked in us for his good pleasure. So Paul is encouraging them in their diligence 
in the progressive sanctification and their growth with Christ, he's saying, keep it up. Continue to work out the salvation. You're obeying. You're doing awesome. Remember to do it. It's God's working in you for his good pleasure. Then he moves to being thankful in this crooked world. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, this word grumbling uh, in the Greek, I think it carries with it the connotation. I think I got this right. Let me try to pronounce it. Ugh. I think that's exactly how it goes. Let me check my notes. Yeah. Oh, man. It's probably the word, the, the thing, the guttural thing that you heard when you told your kids that school starts up this week. No. Not again. This happens all the time, every year. It's like we have that feelings-based instinctual sound of complaining that we often are very, very good at. The word disputing actually carries with it more of an educated form of complaining. It's where you invite somebody to lunch just so you can share with them all the problems you have in your life. Say, let me lay out for you. I have a great, I have a nice list here. Let me go through all the points of all the people who have wronged me and, and all the things going bad at work and well, how's it going in my home life. And I can just lay out a great plan so that at the end of lunch, you're all going to agree with me and you're all going to understand. And maybe I can get you to complain as well because my arguments will be so well laid out. Seems that even as we tell kids, do everything without grumbling or complaining, grumbling or disputing. And it seemed like I had that phrase, that's this verse on repeat, when my kids were super little. It was just constantly to say, do everything without grumbling and complaining. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Do everything without complaining. Do everything without complaining. Just over and over and over again. It was just be constant. And I'd be like, Marcy, they're not listening to me. These kids, I can't believe it. And she's like, do everything without grumbling and complaining. I'm like, no, no, me. Ugh. It's difficult, right? It's, it's hard to do everything without grumbling and complaining. And even as adults, we find ourselves that this can be a very easy sin to find ourselves in, right? We're very good at it. We start when we're really little, but then we practice and practice and practice till we get really good at it to where it doesn't sound like complaining. It sounds like we're justified in the things that we say. In the commentary I was reading uh, called Opening Up Philippians, He says this, he says, when we complain and grumble, we are telling those around us that we believe God is doing a very poor job, and if given the opportunity, we could do much better. Now, usually when we complain, we have very good reasons why we're complaining, right? We can make a list, but when we, and we think that everybody does it, so really, is it that big of a deal? Everybody complains, everybody argues about something. So really, is this something that is a real big sin that we should actually try to work on? Well, when we put it in this way that we believe God is doing a poor job and we want to take his place, it makes it sound a lot bigger of a sin than what we might, not, what we might normally think about it, right? We think, oh, complaining about this person in our life. This part of God, if you just remove this person, my life would be easier, They do all these things wrong. They do all these things against me. They're out to get me, whatever it might be. We're saying, God, you didn't know what you were doing putting that person in my life. I would do it much better. I would have somebody else there. Or whatever situation, we say, I'm complaining about the situation God has me in, saying I would have done it much differently if I was God. That makes grumbling and complaining look a lot bigger 
than what we might actually think it to be. Let's take a look at some of the other ways that our mouths can cause us to sin. James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. That means if you can watch your words, you're able to control your entire body. How amazing is that? But guess what? We all stumble in what we say. That's how pervasive our our sin is with our words. Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Speaking careless words. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. So many verses. We're going to look in Proverbs a little bit tonight and look up so many verses that talk about our mouths and our words and how much sin they can get us into. Scripture says the reason that we do these things without grumbling and disputing, as we look back at the text here in verse 15, is that we do it because this is how a child of God acts. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of this crooked generation. It's not that this lack of grumbling and complaining is going to make us a child of God. Because we know that that's the work of God in us. That's the work of Jesus Christ that creates in us a desire for holy things that opens our eyes to the truth of the word. It's God who's at work in us. So we understand that, but it's, so it's not that, but it's that by not grumbling and complaining, it's demonstrating to this crooked and twisted world that you are a child of God. And it helps you grow to become more and more blameless, more and more innocent, without blemish in this crooked and twisted generation. So it begins to help us to cause us to become like Christ. Because everybody complains, right? Everybody does. Think about the people you know who doesn't know Christ. Do they complain a lot? So how are we going to separate ourselves as believers in Christ? How are we going to be a light? He says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. And as we look at it, it really helps us to understand verses 12 and 13. What part of verse 15 can we do on our own? As you look at it there, what part can we really do on our own? Can you become blameless and innocent just on your own if you just try your best? Is that going to work? No. Can you become a child of God on your own? No. It's obviously the work of God. So does that mean that we're going to, once we are children of God, that we're going to magically do all things without grumbling and complaining? No. You must hold your tongue. You must watch your mouth. Proverbs 13.3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. We live in a very crooked and twisted generation. I don't think I need to convince you of this. From TV shows and music lyrics and movies to politics, you might not even need to look past your own workplace or maybe your school. But we need to understand that it's not just this generation. It's not just these young whippersnappers nowadays. Not these young, these millennials. I mean, it's all them. That's the crooked and twisted generation, or that Generation Z, or whatever generation you're thinking of. It's not just that generation, because back in Romans chapter 1, which is before all of our generations, I think, 
It says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So it's not just one generation he's talking about. It's all generations are crooked and twisted. I mean, this week, our internet was a little bit spotty. It was going in and out. Guess who complained about the internet being out this week? No, me. (laughs) Me, I did. Guess who was working on a sermon about grumbling and complaining and still complained about the internet being out? I did. It was me. I need the work of God to continue in my life. I need him to continue to work on me and grow in me a desire to, to not grumble and complain. Praise the Lord, I got caught on my sin early on and I was able to seek forgiveness. But the only way that we're going to shine as lights in the world is if we're going to do all things without grumbling and complaining. Are you known as someone who complains a lot? Or someone who can always find something wrong in whatever situation or whatever person is around you? There's always a critique or something about them. Do you find more enjoyment in complaining than you do in being thankful? The answer is yes. Then you're going to be blending in well with a crooked and twisted generation. Are you someone that complainers come to? You're going to lend a sympathetic ear to them. I need to ask why. Because you want to complain yourself or do you want to actually point them to Christ? As they continued in their progressive sanctification, these believers, doing all things without grumbling and disputing, let's look at verse 16. He says, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. It's essential in any Christian life that we hold fast to the truth of the word. We have to love it. This is more than just a read, a, a memorize a verse and then you'll never sin again. I have verse 14 here memorized very well. It's a short verse. I've used it many, many, many times with my children, many times on myself. I know this verse very well, but guess what? Just because I have it memorized doesn't mean I'm not going to sin in, in that area ever again. But the only way I'm not going to sin and grumbling and complaining is if I hold fast to the word. If I love it, if I'm cherishing it, not just if I've read it before or if I maybe just read a chapter a day and that'll keep the sin away, right? If I just read a chapter in the morning, I won't sin the rest of the day. I got it, I'll be good, and I'll be fine the rest of the week. If I just read one chapter every day. It's not, this isn't a magic pill that we take in the morning. This isn't something that it's just nice to have around because it'll keep Satan away or anything like that. We have to hold fast to the Word of God. If we're going to do all things without grumbling and complaining, if we're going to stand out as a light, we have to hold fast. We have to cherish it. Think about the young child who cherishes his blankie or his pacifier. Imagine putting that blankie in the laundry to clean it just for like an hour or so. Chaos ensues in that child's life because they don't have the blankie. And it's not just about the fabric. It's not just about the shape of it. It's the relationship, really, that that child has with the blanket. We have our wooden table at home, our dining room table. It's just a bunch of wood with screws and nails in it. That's all it really is. But it's a table that I grew up eating on at my parents' house, and now we have built so many memories around that table. It's the relationship with that dining room table, as silly as that might sound. 
But it's not just that you have a Bible and that you read it every now and again or that you've memorized a verse or two. What's your relationship with the Word of God? Do you hold fast to it? Do you cling to it? Do you love it? That is what's going to help you to not grumble and complain. That's what's going to help you to obey whether you think God's watching or not. It's what's going to help you to be a light in this world. Love the Word of God. Hold fast to it. Our final point for this today is to be joyful in the Christian walk. If we're going to be honest, there might be times when we might wonder, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to wake up every Sunday morning and go to church? Is it really worth it to be kind to that jerk? Is it worth it to read your Bible every day? Is it worth to not complain about just about everything? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to share the gospel with your friends? Is it worth it to raise your kids in a way that pleases God? Is it, is it really worth it to put all this effort to work out our salvation? Is it really worth it? Let's look at the latter part of verse 16. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul uses this day of Christ again, referring to the second coming. He used it in chapter 1, verses 6 and verse 10. And it's a a time of judgment that's going to happen in 2 Corinthians 5.10 as well. For the Christian, this day of judgment will actually be a time of rejoicing. We're going to be standing before God and Jesus Christ. He will be judging us, and we will be able to stand there and see the good See the good that God has worked in us for us to accomplish. And he's looking forward to that because he says, at the day of Christ, when I'm standing before Jesus Christ, when all is said and done, I may be proud that I did not run in vain and labor in vain. He can be proud of that. And this pride is not a pride of look at me and the things that I've done. He's using it as a term of rejoicing. He also used it in 2 Corinthians 7.4 where he says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you and I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. This word pride is used in the positive sense that in all the efforts that he made as Christ has been working in him, as God has worked in him, that he would not have been for nothing. How many of you have ever experienced a time where you thought all my efforts was in vain. It was pointless. Ever been assigned a uh, paper? You thought it was on a certain topic, but you got the topic wrong. That was actually assigned to the person next to you. You turn in your paper, and you're like, oh, you should have done it on something else. And you're like, no. I studied about this all for nothing. Why? Or maybe you cleaned up your entire house just to have your company cancel on you last minute. Like, I cleaned it all for nothing. Sure, it's nice to have a clean house, but really... For nothing, why did I do this? You know that sinking feeling that you have when you realize something you did is in vain. But when you're standing at the day of Christ, you're going to realize that the things in the name of Christ for the Lord, the sacrifices that you made, you'll realize it wasn't in vain. It wasn't in vain at all because he says you're doing it, and he's doing this, being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. He's doing it for the faith of others. 
Not just for himself that he might gloat in all the great things that he's accomplished, but he's doing it to encourage and help those who are around him. Paul takes comfort and joy in seeing the growth in the Christian life of others. In Old Testament, he talks about this drink offering that we see here that he refers to. In Exodus 29, 41, it says, shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And in Numbers 15, 10, it also refers to this drink offering, shall offer a drink offering, half a hin of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And he talks about how at the end of his life, when he writes to Timothy, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Do you think that the efforts that Paul made as he was sacrificing himself, as he was pouring out his life for the faith of others, do you think that was a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Do you think God looked at his life and said, well done, good and faithful servant? These sacrifices that are made to the Lord are for his good pleasure, made on behalf of other people, some people might look at that as looking at sacrificing for others, as seen uh, maybe as a bit tiring or just sluggish. Serving others really is a drain on our life. Is it really worth it to do all that? Or I've been doing the same ministry for years, so it's somebody else's turn. I'm just burnt out on that. I want to encourage you uh, this morning, and especially nursery workers, I want to focus on you for a second. You might not see the spiritual growth in those newborns as you're holding them in the nursery or maybe in twos and threes when you feel like you might just be hurting cats, that sort of thing. You might not be able to see the spiritual growth or think that they're getting these lessons that you're teaching them. I hope you do see that the sacrifice that you're making and being willing to not sit in on, on a service here and be in the nursery, I hope you see that as sacrificing your time and your efforts and your energy so that those young parents could be in here and hear the word of God and be encouraged that they can be uplifted, that they can have maybe a conversation with another adult. How great is that, right, sometimes? So I hope you take encouragement from that, that the sacrifice that you're making and not sitting in on the service, that you don't think, oh, I missed it again, or I missed it again. We have YouTube videos. You can watch it there if you really missed it. But that your sacrifice is really helping the faith of so many others. You can watch multiple kids that means that many more parents can come in and hear the word and be encouraged. Take joy in what you're doing. Don't consider it a pain or tiring, even though it, sometimes it is tiring. Sometimes it, it does feel like a sacrifice, and that's okay. That's good. Take joy in that. Take joy in the fact that you're sacrificing for the Lord. There are only a few people that are outside of my family that I can point to who have really made a big, profound spiritual impact in my life. One of them was my senior pastor growing up. I didn't really understand uh, as I was a kid growing up of all that he did, but when I became an intern at my church, I really understood and he really invested in me. And I really started to get it. And I was like, wow, he, he made a profound impact on my life. Another one was a lady by the name of Mrs. Smith. I don't think I was ever allowed to call her by her first name. So Mrs. Smith, and she was my Sunday school teacher in third grade, and she taught that class for 20 or 30 years, uh, amazing, just the sacrifice that she made. And I don't remember any of her lessons either. You might think that it would have been a waste on me, but I remember that she loved God and she loved me and prayed for me. 
and she talked to me about how I'm learning, what I'm learning about, and, and she showed great love for me. And I remember that, and it made a huge impact on my life. Another guy was the uh, name of Chip Stein. He was uh, in the tech industry. He was my junior high Sunday school teacher. And he made a big impact on me because he was the first adult who actually seemed to want to hang out with me, like outside of the classroom and influence me for Christ. It was really interesting to have another adult really be interested in my spiritual growth. And I thought that was really neat. It made a huge impact on me. And another guy by the name of Eric Brunko. He's an engineer. And he was a youth leader, just a lay youth leader in the church. And he really pushed me spiritually. And he's the first one to say, hey, have you ever thought about going into youth ministry? Like, no, I don't think so. And he's the one who encouraged me. He had me over to his house many times. And I invited myself over to his house more times than that. And he was always welcoming. He always let me come with his uh, wife and his uh, just young child at the time. And made a huge impact. And we talked about scripture we played games. We just hung out together. He sacrificed his family time. He sacrificed his energy, having me over for dinner and money on my behalf for my faith. He truly poured out himself for me. And I am truly grateful. I rejoice at that. Like it says there in verse 15, or verse 18, sorry, it's not just that the ones who are sacrificing rejoice in what they're doing. He's saying, join with me, rejoice with me. He's like, I'm not doing all these things for you just so that you feel guilty or you like me more. I want us to be rejoicing together. I could go around this room and name so many people who have poured into my life on my my behalf, and I'm not going to name all the names because I don't want to miss anybody. But so many of you have invested your wisdom and your time and your energy, your money and resources to be a specific encouragement to me and my family. You've poured yourself out. You sacrificed yourself for my faith. Those of you who are older, I encourage you, invest in those who are younger. Pour out your life for them. In the name of Jesus Christ, as God has worked in you, as people have poured into you, pour your lives into them. It doesn't matter how old you are. We had high schoolers just this last week pour into young kids' lives during soccer camp. I want to encourage you high schoolers, especially those who are juniors and seniors, pour into those who are younger. Don't just look at youth team as a, what's going to be taught to me? What am I going to get out of it? What events are fun for me? Go to the events and and come to church looking to invest in the lives of others. Those of you who are young adults, talk to the teenagers. Give them the wisdom that you wish you would have had when you were in high school. They want that wisdom. They need it. Whether they realize it or not, they need that wisdom. Those of you who are older adults, look at the young adults. If you're older marrieds, look at the younger marrieds. They need your help. They need your wisdom. They need your time and your efforts and your resources to help them grow in their walk with Christ. We need one another. We can't just come just saying, what's in it for me? We have to be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the faith of others. And there will be great joy you will have in doing that. Ephesians 5, he says to imitate Christ this way. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering in sacrifice to God. So this isn't a command. This, isn't a, this is not just a good suggestion. This, is not as, this would be a nice thought if we could all do this. This is a command of God to be imitators of him, and we are to walk in how Christ walked. Did Christ just love us just when it fit into his schedule? If he had time for us, then he would love us. And No, it says that he sacrificed himself. 
It takes up our time and efforts. It doesn't always fit into our schedule, into our neatly made plans. How did Christ love us? That's how we're to love one another. As we always obey, now, in, now as well as whether Paul was absent or, or maybe our parents aren't around, we need to obey even more. We need to work out this salvation. We are to give ourselves to each other. This is the mind of Christ, to consider the interests of others as more important than our own. It takes a sacrifice to be involved in someone's life in such a way that maybe when they're little, they can stand up when they become a young man or a young woman, that they can look and they say, so-and-so invested in my life. That's why I am the man of God or the woman of God I am today, because of Christ's work in them working out their salvation, pouring themselves out for me as Christ works in me to be able to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's no greater joy. It says in 3 John 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. I want to close with these verses. Come from Romans chapter 12 that we're going to take a closer look at tonight. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Pretend that he's talking directly to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In order to shine as a light in the world, you must be willing to sacrifice your pride, your self-centeredness, as God works in you. Let's do everything without grumbling and complaining. Let's go be lights in this crooked and twisted generation because they need lights. They need Christ. Let's go be Christ to them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts, the salvation, this work that you began that you're going to be faithful to complete. Help us to not take it for granted. Help us to work all the harder. Work all the more as you're working in our lives. Help us to be willing to sacrifice ourselves, even sacrifice the language we want to use to not grumble and complain. Help us to be lights in this darkness. I pray that people will come and look at us and they will see us and then we can point them to Christ. We need your help in this. We need you to do the work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.